This week on Viewpoints. We don't need more and more processed foods, much of which is getting dumped in the global south. The pervasiveness of palm oil. Then. I typically run maybe 60 to 80 miles a week, sometimes more than that. And I also do a lot of cross training. The life of an ultramarathon runner. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years. I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea. At first, I thought it was what I was eating. I kept thinking it was stomach issues. So I did my research and talked to my doctor, and we finally uncovered the truth. It, it was, was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food. It can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease. So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening. But there's good news. EPI is manageable, so don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could, could I, I have, have EPI? EPI? Sponsored by AbbVie. Did you know that palm oil is the most widely used vegetable oil in the world? In 2018, humans consumed nearly 72 million tons of the product, according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. That amounts to about 20 pounds of palm oil for every person on the planet. We rarely hear about palm oil in the U.S. because most people don't cook with it, but it is found in many of the products we use on a daily basis. It's in roughly half of all products on our supermarket shelves, so that's most mass-manufactured baked goods, so donuts, cookies, snacks, also ice creams, instant noodles, and makeup and personal care products like shampoo and toothpaste and body lotions. That's Jocelyn Zuckerman, a journalist and author of Planet Palm, how palm oil ended up in everything and endangered the world. In recent decades, palm oil production has skyrocketed, leading to widespread deforestation and the endangerment of species that call these forests home. In the 1970s, yearly production of the oil was about 1 million tons. Fast forward to 2016, and the supply has shot up to 63 million tons. So, what's driving this massive increase? For one, palm oil is cheap and efficient to manufacture since it comes from a tree. It looks like a coconut palm tree that you would see in the tropics, where it's grown naturally in Africa as those tall, skinny trunks and then those big palm fronds that you see. But instead of coconuts under there, there are these big sort of spiky brown bunches. They're probably about two feet in diameter, though they're sort of oval. And inside of those are hundreds of these little oil palm fruits. So they are about the size of a date or imagine sort of like an oblong plum. And they're shiny, sort of reddish-orange. And so each of those fruits actually gives you two oils. So if you crush that orange flesh, you get palm oil. And then inside, there's a white kernel. And if you crush that, you get something called palm kernel oil. So they have different properties, and they can be used for different things. And the palm oil is what's used mainly in foods. 
and the palm kernel oil tends to be used a lot in personal care products and makeup. So as I said, it's this orange flesh. It's sort of this strong-tasting oil, but most of the stuff that we encounter has already been refined and bleached and deodorized, so it's basically clear and odorless and tasteless, but it's a nice cheap fat. The two main exporters of palm oil are the Southeast Asian countries of Malaysia and Indonesia. Together, they make up 84% of all global output. However, this dominating commodity has had dire consequences on the land. Lush forests are routinely being chopped down to make way for the planting of palm trees on plantations. In just the last 20 years, Malaysia has lost 20 million acres of tree cover. Trees help combat global warming by removing carbon dioxide from the air. And it's estimated that tropical deforestation alone is responsible for about 8% of the world's yearly greenhouse gas emissions. In addition, the loss of forests has led to dangerous losses of several species, including orangutans, tigers, rhinos, and elephants. Zuckerman highlights that this massive deforestation is the result of an industry that for so long grew without restriction in order to stimulate the economy. When Indonesia and Malaysia gained independence, they had a lot of poor people, a lot of forested land. So these were in both countries poverty alleviation schemes, in Indonesia at least backed by the World Bank. So the idea was to give these poor people, families, a plot of land and give them um, oil palm seedlings, um, often rubber seedlings as well, so that they could start growing that and have some sort of livelihood. And then it's just expanded since then. I mean, as the industry found more and more ways to process the two oils and sell them to different industries, and they put more and more oil palm plants in the ground. And they take about three years to begin harvest, and then they're good for about 20 to 25 years. So once you've invested in these plants and also in the mills and the refineries necessary, to process the oil. That's a huge investment, so you're going to want to get your money's worth over 25 years. The reality is that there are millions of people that rely on the profits of the palm oil industry, but the current practices in place are unsustainable. This is why scientists like Dr. Patricio Grassini are stepping up to find solutions at already operational palm oil plantations. Grassini is an associate professor of agronomy and horticulture at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He recently led a four-year research project that studied the use of better agricultural practices on existing plantations in Indonesia, leading to higher palm oil yields without increasing land use. These practices include things such as better harvest practices to minimize harvest losses, includes greater use of nutrient inputs to improve plant nutrition, which we found to be pretty poor, and other things such as better weed control and better soil and water management. So we are not talking here about things or technologies that do not exist, but rather we are talking about using cost-effective existing agronomy to help big farmers to produce more on the parcel of land that they have under cultivation now, so that for them it represents more income and improved livelihood for them and their families, and overall, for the country, more CPO and more profit. And from an environmental angle, helping Indonesia to reach their production goals without need to further expand all Pamiria into fragile ecosystems such as rainforests and peatlands. The study also focused on improving policy in these regions, resulting in stricter laws on land use and conservation. 
Grissini says that it takes a combined approach to create change. Better policy and practices only go so far, and including leaders, companies, and organizations into the conversation is necessary to make long-term changes. I'm very happy and very proud to be leading a, a project that is so inclusive and so um, constructive in looking for solutions. And actually, Indonesia during the past year has been very proactive in taking measures that can help to protect the environment. And perhaps the most important measure they have taken is to put on place a moratorium on forests and peatlands. And that's where our project fits and makes a contribution by showing Indonesian farmers and government that with the proper policy, with the proper technologies and with the proper knowledge, it's possible for both individual farmers companies and the country produce more without need to expand the area into forests or pitlands. This move by the Indonesian government to limit development on new lands forces people to be more productive with the land they do have. Grassini says that so far there's been a good response from plantation farmers in the industry. We are showing farmers that it is possible with existing and cost-effective technology to increase their productivity. And therefore, if farmers can see that they can produce more on the one or two hectares of all palm area that they have now, then they realize that they don't need to go out there and chop another hectare or two of all palm to increase their overall production. Instead, they can do it by increasing the productivity on the land that they have under cultivation now without need to encroach um, the forest further. As you can see, we are trying to work here directly with farmers, helping them to increase the productivity, their profit, and at the same time contributing to minimize the impact on the environment. Along with Grissini's approach, Zuckerman adds another perspective into the conversation, arguing that there's no need to produce so many million tons of palm oil each year. She highlights that part of the solution may be to rethink how the land is used in general. Part of my thesis is that we don't need this much palm oil. You know, we don't need more and more processed foods much of which is getting dumped in the global south, you know, where diets are changing and people are now experiencing obesity and diabetes. So I think we need to look at that land, particularly land around the equator that houses our tropical rainforests, and, you know, keep those rainforests standing and then use that land to grow healthy things like fruits and vegetables and grains and legumes that bodies need. And again, we, you know, I think everyone's realizing we've got this finite amount of land, right? We can't, we know we can't be eating as much beef as we're eating and we can't chop down tropical rainforests for vegetable oils. There's already way more vegetable oil in the diet than there ever was before and these are calories that we don't need. The reality is that there's a finite amount of forests in the world and already too many have been lost. Palm oil production will continue, and as populations expand, so will the demand for this resource if we continue on this path. This is why it's so important to create solutions now and increase awareness of the negative effects of palm oil production on the environment before it's too late. To find out more about this topic and our guests, Jocelyn Zuckerman and Dr. Patricio Grassini, visit viewpointsradio.org. You can check out Zuckerman's new book, Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World, available now online and in bookstores. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, thinking about getting into running this summer? We get some tips from an ultra-distance runner when Viewpoints returns. Pandemic school closures have taken a large toll on both children and their parents, socially, emotionally, and academically. 
But with prevention steps, including regular PCR-based COVID-19 testing, outbreaks in schools may be largely prevented. In fact, the Biden administration has identified testing in schools as a critical proactive step in recovery from the pandemic. Here's Shiraz Ladiwala, Senior Vice President of Business Transformation Projects, Thermal Fisher Scientific. Testing for schools can be done accurately, efficiently, and affordably by using pooled PCR testing programs where multiple samples are tested at once. Batch results are reported as positive or negative and returned in 12 to 48 hours, helping to quickly indicate a potential outbreak. Highly accurate COVID-19 testing helps school administrators detect outbreaks quickly, so informed decisions about in-person learning can be made. Find out more at thermofisher.com slash COVID testing for schools. To remind pet owners that Progressive covers pets in our auto policy at no extra charge, we're making a really cute pet-themed radio commercial. You got to see this dog. It's a little puffball. It looks like a piece of cotton candy that I could just eat up. Oh, and it waddles when it walks. He's a little ducky dog. Oh, I wish you could see it. We really should have planned this better. Get coverage for your pets with an auto policy from Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Coverage for cats and dogs included with the purchase of collision coverage and is subject to policy terms. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Do you consider yourself a runner? More of a light jogger? Maybe you've done a half marathon or a 5K at some point. Whatever category you fall into, there's no doubt that running at any skill level brings many benefits both physically and mentally. Just in the last year, many Americans have turned to the sport during the pandemic. While the majority of gyms were closed, it offered an opportunity to get some exercise, spend time outside, and maybe explore a new part of town or trail path. Dean Carnassus is one of those people that found solace in running outdoors. However, his runs are probably longer than yours. Carnassus is a professional ultra-marathon runner and the author of the book A Runner's High. So what exactly is an ultra-marathon? A marathon is 26.2 miles. And in Latin, the phrase ultra, the prefix ultra means beyond. So an ultra-marathon is anything beyond 26.2 miles. So a typical ultramarathon is 50 miles or maybe 100 kilometers, which is 62 miles, or maybe 100 miles. And that's what an ultramarathon is. It's a long-distance foot race, and it's usually continuous. So you have a certain amount of time you have to finish the race. And is it challenging? It's, <laughs> it's incredibly challenging. And, you know, how do you train? Well, you train by running quite a bit. So I, um, I typically run maybe 60 to 80 miles a week, sometimes more than that. And I also do a lot of cross training because it's very rigorous when you're doing these sort of events and you want your body to be as strong as possible. Apart from the physical challenges, Carnassus says pushing through the mental barriers can sometimes feel more daunting during these long runs. He's had bad days where the exhaustion settles in and with it comes the strong urge to keel over and give up, especially during the last half of a long run. 
But looking back, he's always persevered. He's competed in snowshoes in the freezing tundra of the South Pole and placed first in a 135-mile race that spanned the scorching surface of Death Valley. In addition to extreme temperatures, there are also other obstacles along the often desolate race path. I've had bear encounters. I have nearly stepped on many, many snakes, including rattlesnakes. I've been chased by animals, and I've also seen a lot of scorpions and tarantulas on the trail. So these are the kind of things that you got to keep an eye out for. But I also think it makes the sport so exciting. With all of the dangers that come with ultra running, including possible injury, why does Carnassus do it? Some people may think it's crazy to put yourself through these extreme lengths. But for him and other ultra runners, the benefits outweigh the risks. I kind of followed the prescription for happiness. You go to college, you go to graduate school, you go to business school. You get a comfortable corporate job and happiness follows. But the prescription wasn't working for me. (laughs) I had all these things and I was miserable. I think that we've gotten things a little bit twisted around in Western culture. I think we thought if we had every convenience available to us, we'd be happy. And I think in a lot of ways, we're so comfortable, we're miserable. And every runner knows that we're never more alive than when we're out there struggling and trying to persist. And those are the moments that we really cherish. I was saying there's magic and misery, and I think every runner can relate to that. For Carnassus, focusing on the motion of running itself during the race is key. The breath, the rhythm, the path in front of you are all important focus points. I think when you quote-unquote hit the wall and you want to stop, the best thing to do is to be in the present moment of time, the here and now. So don't think about how much further you've got to go. Try not to reflect on the past. Just focus on taking your next step to the best of your ability. And if you can put yourself in the here and now, in the present moment, you can get through these, you know, these challenging times and push through it. So what does Carnassus think about during an 80-hour race when he's all alone on his route? People sometimes ask me, you know, what do you think about when you're running 100 miles? You know, do you listen to music? You must get bored out there. The honest answer is you don't think about much because the endeavor itself is so intense it just commands your full attention. So everything you're doing is entirely focused on staying hydrated, keeping your clothing dry, and if it's cold, keeping yourself covered. But not um, a spare moment goes by where you're not thinking of one thing, and that is, how am I going to reach the finish line? So <laughs> to me, it's pretty exciting because rarely in life do we think of just one thing. Our minds are such active places where we're typically very distracted. But for a 100-mile foot race, you know, which can take 24 hours or longer, you're just focused on one thing, and that is crossing the finish line. And once you do finally cross this line, the runner's high can be very real. It's a euphoric and joyous state that can stick around for several hours. It's also a big accomplishment to achieve a goal or set a new personal best, or for some, even just finishing the race itself. And it doesn't matter if you're running a 5K or a 50K. Running can be a rewarding experience for everyone. But if you're just starting out, Carnassus has some pro tips. I always tell people to start from the ground up. So invest in a good pair of running shoes. Because if you have good shoes, you'll just be that much more comfortable. And then don't run for distance. Run for time. Just try to run for three continuous minutes. And I know a lot of experienced runners are saying, hold it, what do you mean? That's not even a warm-up. But for someone who's just starting out, running for three continuous minutes can be very difficult. So I say to them, don't sprint when you start out because you won't last for three minutes. 
you might just make it a minute and then you'll be walking. The goal is to run for three continuous minutes and to be completely exhausted when you reach three minutes. And if you can make it three minutes, then move up to five minutes. And after five minutes, move up to 10 minutes. And after 10 minutes, see if you can run continuously for 15 minutes. And once you hit that point, then try to run 5K, which is 3.1 continuous miles. And that's a good way to kind of stair-step into it. And becoming a better runner doesn't just mean running more. Carnassus notes that doing other exercises can also help to bolster endurance and lessen the risk of injury. It's one, not just running, but cross-training. So building your overall muscle strength. And that might be with, you know, push-ups, pull-ups, you know, sit-ups, burpees, lunges, things of those nature that condition your muscles beyond just running. In addition to good shoes, a healthy diet, and other types of exercise, running with a buddy can also be very motivating. The drive of another person beside you can work wonders. Carnassus says another important rule for new runners is to set short-term goals when training. It can be as simple as running for five minutes straight or signing up for a 5K in two months. So what's on the agenda next for Carnassus? One time I ran 50 marathons in all of the 50 U.S. states in 50 consecutive days, and it was just the greatest adventure ever. <laughs> it was exploration at its finest because not only did I get to visit all 50 states, I got to tour them at six miles an hour. And I want to take that same sort of concept um, global. So I'd like to run a marathon in every country of the world in a one-year time frame. And that's my next goal. Obviously, with the pandemic, the timeline is being pushed out, but that's what I'd like to accomplish next. To find out more about Dean Carnassus and the sport of ultramarathon running, visit viewpointsradio.org. You can also check out his book, A Runner's High, available now online and in bookstores. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. COVID-19 vaccines are rolling out and many Americans are looking forward to getting back to normal. However, chronic stress of the past year can impact memory, mood, and anxiety. So during June, Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month, the Alzheimer's Association reminds you to make brain health a priority. Beth Kallmeyer, Vice President of Care and Support for the Alzheimer's Association, has tips to restore mental well-being. First, think about recommitting to brain-healthy basics, like regular exercise, a heart-healthy diet, and getting plenty of sleep. Try to unplug from technology every night. Do what you can to manage your own stress, especially if you're a caregiver for a person living with Alzheimer's or dementia. And return to normal at your own pace by taking small steps and setting boundaries. Kallmeyer says it also helps the brain to help others by volunteering in your community. For example, by supporting the Alzheimer's Association's The Longest Day event, June 20th. Find out more about Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month at ALZ.org. Welcome to Culture Crash where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. It's an easy enough trap to fall in. For many of us, it may seem that more is always better. If a TV show gets three perfect seasons, we may crave a fourth, only to find that the quality dropped off significantly. I am an avid Stephen King reader, but do find that sometimes his long-winded novels can overstay their welcomes. 
Similarly, I seem to remember growing up in an era when music albums just grew longer and longer. Musicians like Drake and Justin Timberlake have released hour-plus long albums. In fact, Drake specifically can seem in need of a good editor in the studio with him as his albums regularly drag along for 80 or 90 minutes. Sometimes albums of this length can really rise to the occasion. Beyonce's self-titled 2014 album comes to mind, but lately I've found myself feeling more and more that shorter, tighter albums are resonating with me more clearly. 21 Pilots is one of my favorite bands, but their 2018 album Trench felt like a bit of a drag. Its 56-minute runtime left me growing weary by its end, unsure of which track stood out or what the album's main point was. In contrast, their latest album, titled Scaled and Icy, has completely enthralled me, with a runtime of just 38 minutes. Olivia Rodrigo's debut album, Sour, runs just 34 minutes, and it is setting the world on fire, tearing up the record books and propelling the 18-year-old into superstardom. Ironically, I've spent more time listening to these tighter, shorter efforts than the longer works. With longer albums, I find myself coming back to a few songs and doing away with the larger body of work, whereas these shorter albums capture my attention in a way that brings me back to the full work time and time again. This is nothing new. The Beatles' landmark album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band clocks in under 40 minutes, and it has resonated for more than 50 years. Of course, art deserves however long it needs to be expressed, but I have found a unique power in artists stripping down the self-indulgences and releasing tighter, more focused pieces of art. Both Scaled and Icy and Sour have been in heavy rotation in my house. They seem to say so much with their limited time, and I can't get enough of either. I'm Evan Rowe. You heard you could save big when you bundle home and auto with Progressive, so you went online to check it out. But then you saw a link for a survey about which type of bread you are. And now you're on question 17, barely scratching the surface of your bread identity. You always thought of yourself as a brioche, but are you actually more of a pumpernickel? Ah, yes. They said it was easy to save money bundling with Progressive, but they forgot about the rest of the Internet. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. For the ones who know that a little late is always too late. And that the clock doesn't stop just because you're missing a part. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry. And our KeepStock inventory management solutions help ensure you have the right stuff in the right place at exactly the right time. Visit Granger.com slash KeepStock to learn more. Granger for the ones who get it done. And 
that's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTrax Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Viewpoints.